Here on Stolen Lives, we discuss brutal and heartbreaking cases against children. Themes may include child murder, torture, and sexual, domestic, and child abuse. I do try my best to remain respectful for the babies in these stories and leave out unnecessary details that honestly, none of us need to know to understand the frustration of why and how this ever happened. However, if you find any of these themes triggering, this podcast may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. This week's episode is a listener suggestion from one of my favourite listeners and members of the Facebook group, John. John is always sharing the podcast on social media. I see you. I am internally grateful for everyone who shares the podcast to get these stories heard by a wider audience. So thank you. October 1997, Bega, a safe and quiet town in country New South Wales, Australia. Two teenage girls are having a camp out with friends when one wanted to go for a walk to a nearby town to visit an ex-boyfriend to rekindle their relationship. Nicole and Lauren said goodbye to their friends and set off into the night. That would be the last time the girls would be ever seen alive again. Only a few hours later, a massive search party would come together, and six weeks later, the girls' bodies were found, murdered less than two miles from their home. The bigger schoolgirl murders, as this story would become infamously known as, remains two of the most notorious murders in Australia to this day. This is Lauren and Nicole's story. Garrett and Cheryl Barry and Graham and Delma Collins had known each other forever. When both families had daughters two years apart, Nicole Emma Collins being born on November 14, 1980, and Lauren Margaret Barry on October 11, 1982, they knew their girls were destined to be best friends, and the two girls quickly became inseparable. They were more like sisters and friends. Nicole and Lauren would be later described as happy kids, that they never let anything get them down for long. They shared a love of horses and animals. Their families would say the girls were wise beyond their years, old souls if you will. Nicole would be described as very friendly and outgoing, always on the go and always full of energy. Lauren was the more reserved of the pair. She was described as a homebody who loved spending time with her family. She was very close to her brother, 17-year-old Nathan, and at the time our story takes place, both girls were attending Bega High School with Nicole in the 11th grade and Lauren in the 9th grade. The families lived in the Kalaroo neighbourhood of Bega, New South Wales, Australia. Now, Bega is around 438 kilometres or 267 miles south of Sydney. The town is very well known for its cheese, named after the town. There is always Bega cheese in our own fridge at home. Bega then and now is considered a safe town. It is a close-knit community and rural with farmland and national forests everywhere. And in 1997, when our story takes place, Bega had a population of less than 3,500 residents. It's actually not that much bigger now, 25 years later. So it truly was that small-town stereotype of everyone knowing everyone. Labor Day weekend, Friday, October 3rd, 1997. This was an exciting weekend. It was a three-day weekend. School spring break was coming up and it was almost Lauren's 15th birthday. 
The girls wanted to go camping with their friends to celebrate life and everything they had, choosing White Rock as their camping destination. And the Barrys and the Collins didn't see a problem with this, as long as Nicole's father, Graham Collins, set up the campsite for them. And the girls promised to check in with him and his wife for food and showers each day. Besides, it was a safe area and around three and a half kilometres or less than two miles from the Collins family home. Unfortunately, the close proximity to Nicole's home did not protect them. For the first two days, everything was going accordingly. The girls would come back to their house as agreed. They loved showing their friends the area because they had camped there many times before. Lauren's brother Nathan would join them. The little group of friends loved exploring, finding new discoveries they had never seen before. Sunday, October 5th, 1997, the last night of the camping trip. The girls had friends again at the campsite, but as their friends were leaving, one told 16-year-old Nicole Collins that her ex-boyfriend was at a party in the nearby town of Jella Jella, which was about 8 kilometres or around 5 miles away. Nicole still held a flame for this boy, and she wanted to go to see if they could rekindle their romance. 14-year-old Lauren Barry did not want her best friend going off wandering in the dark by herself, and she told Nicole she was coming too. 9pm, Nicole and Lauren set off for the party, and this wasn't seen as a big deal at the time. The girls were responsible, and this was how the kids got around. It was a safe area even at night. It was rural, and no one was really around unless you lived there. The kids of the area were brought up with the notion of trust and safety. Sadly, the girls never reached their destination and no one would ever see them alive again. I have been real busy of late, trying to bring you more episodes and all of your suggestions before the end of 2023. But what I love doing when I can is enjoying this cool weather and going on adventures. That's why I love today's sponsor, Factor. Factor brings fresh, never-frozen meals right to your doorstep. You can actually skip the trip to the grocery store and skip chopping, prepping and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, delicious meals are ready in literally two minutes. All you need to do is heat and enjoy, and then go back outside and soak up the last of those warm summer rays. There are 34 chef-prepared, dietitian-approved weekly meal options for you to choose from. You will never get bored with all of the options. My assistant Sarah loves the cold-pressed juices and smoothies that are so refreshing after a long day racing around. If you're looking for calorie-conscious meals ahead of the busy season, try out the delicious, dietitian-approved calorie-smart meals that are only around 550 calories per serving. Factor has really helped Sarah free up some time in her day, which means more time with the family. Head to factormeals.com slash stolen50 and use code stolen50 to get 50% off. That's code stolen50 at factormeals.com slash stolen50 to get 50% off. Several hours later, Lauren's brother Nathan went back down to the campsite to hang out with the girls and their friends, but they weren't there. There was no sign of Nicole or Lauren anywhere. All their belongings were still there, but not the girls. Nathan didn't think much of it. Maybe the girls hadn't returned from the party yet. He crawled into his tent and went to sleep. The following morning, Nathan would be the first camper to awaken, and he immediately noticed his sister and her friends were still not there. Nathan raced home to see if maybe the girls went back home instead. 
but Garrett and Cheryl Barry had not seen them either. The Barrys started to call around to all Lauren's friends to see if anyone had seen or heard from the girls. Garrett drove down to the campsite to question the other teens because maybe they knew where the girls were. And this was when he learned of the party and the eight-kilometre walk the night before. So that made sense then, that they went home to the Collins afterwards instead of the campsite. But then they weren't there either. They weren't anywhere. Lauren and Nicole were reported missing to Bega police. The search for the missing girls started immediately. By midday, police, state emergency services and volunteer searchers scoured the entire wooded area. And this continued for weeks, but no sign of the girls' whereabouts could be found. On the first day of the search, one of the volunteers found some abandoned clothing on the side of a dirt road near the campsite, a girl's top and a red checkered plaid shirt. These items would be identified as being the clothing Lauren Barry was wearing the night she went missing. These items of clothing would be returned to her parents, and her mother would simply put them away, unaware that these pieces of clothing held vital DNA evidence of her daughter's killer. Thankfully, she didn't wash them, because that evidence, which was extremely important in gaining a conviction in a later criminal trial, it would have been lost forever. Weeks would go by with no sign and no trace of the girls, police interviewing those living in the area and partygoers from their intended destination. They interviewed the friends that were at the campsite that day. Lauren's brother Nathan, poor kid, he would spend weeks driving around the area, down the rural roads and on highways, trying desperately to find who he called his best mate. Their families held a candlelight vigil, and Nicole's parents took part in a public plea for the girl's safe return on the nightly news. But there was nothing. The girls were just gone. Then a tip comes in. A tip that ties a vehicle to Lauren and Nicole's disappearance. A woman was driving down Bega Tathra Road just before 10pm on the night the girls went missing. In front of her was a car stopped on the side of the highway, but not completely on the shoulder. This car was still on the road, so she couldn't pass. The woman stops for a time, and in her headlights... She sees a young man speaking to two teenage girls. Thankfully, she gets a decent enough look at the man to give the police a detailed description. And the car, a grey Ford Telstra, moves over further off the road, allowing her to pass and she continues on her journey. October 25th, 1997. The investigation would change from a missing persons case to that of murder. That afternoon, Canberra police found an abandoned vehicle, a grey Ford Telstra, and when the police ran the plates, they found the car had been reported stolen about six weeks earlier. Inside the stolen car, police found a map of the Bega area, which in itself was suspicious, as Bega is a distance of almost three hours by car from Canberra. But a car matching this description was also observed by that witness in the White Rock campground on the night Lauren and Nicole went missing. Police didn't have to look far to find out who had stolen the car to question him further, because also in the vehicle was the belongings of a career criminal, 23-year-old Lindsay Beckett. Lindsay Beckett was very well known by police. He had a rap sheet that most criminals don't have by the end of their life, let alone by the age of 23. Police were also aware that he often worked with another career criminal from the area, 26-year-old Leslie Camilleri. And Camilleri was even more infamous. 
he already had 146 prior criminal convictions, including thefts, assaults and sexual offences against minors. In fact, Camilleri was not only out on bail for charges relating to sexual offences against her former partner's daughter, but he also was the prime suspect for a brutal and horrific sexual assault. Only weeks before Lauren and Nicole went missing, on September 14, 1997, 19-year-old Rosemarie Gendarius was abducted in Canberra by two men in their 20s. She was held captive for over 12 hours, driven to a number of locations and raped repeatedly by these men. Rosemarie managed to escape when the vehicle stopped at a rest area on a highway near the town of Bowral. Rosemarie asked her abductors if she could go use the bathroom, and wearing only a t-shirt and shoes, she hid in bushland until the men left. Rosemarie then ran to a nearby farmhouse for help. Even though Rosemarie picked Camilleri from a photo lineup, there just wasn't enough evidence to convict him for this crime, and after two days of questioning, all charges were dropped. As the car police found was stolen, two days later police arrested Beckett for the car theft, and the next day, October 27, 1997, Camilleri was also arrested for the same crime. Given the circumstances, police questioned the two men about Lauren Barry and Nicole Collins' disappearances in Bega. They admitted to stealing the car but flat out denied involvement in the missing persons case. Despite Beckett and Camilleri being the type of monsters who would kidnap two young girls, police had no evidence and didn't press further. All they had was a car that kind of matched the description of a car seen in the area the girls went missing. A car that may not be involved in why they went missing anyway. But investigators couldn't shake that Beckett and Camilleri were somehow involved. But a pink television would be their undoing. Because when the two girls went missing, they were last seen walking along Bega Tathara Road. And seen along this road from about 10 that night was a small pink television. At the time, police didn't think too much of these reports. How could an abandoned pink television lead them to what happened to two missing teenage girls? How wrong could they be? It would prove to be their smoking gun. Police started to question Beckett and Camilleri's known associates. One in particular was actually a police informant. And when he was questioned, this man told police that on October 5th, 1997, the night Nicole and Lauren went missing... Camilleri and Beckett had gone to his home with the intention of the informant buying drugs from them. However, since the informant didn't have any money, Beckett offered to take a little pink television in exchange for the drugs. This television was placed in the back of the stolen grey Ford Telstra, and somehow, by some miracle, this informant had the serial number of the television. Desperate for a lead, any lead at this point, police followed this up, really not expecting for the lead to lead anywhere. They traced the serial number, not thinking that anyone would have registered the number, but someone did. This television was found at a local hotel, and the hotel staff said they had got the television from, like, a second-hand shop. And the second-hand shop said, a council worker found the television on the side of the road near the White Rock campground, the exact place the girls were last seen. This gave police exactly what they needed, because this pink television placed Camilleri and Beckett at the same place at the same time as the girls when they went missing. Police brought the men back in for questioning. Camilleri again denied being in Bega that night, denied knowing anything about the girls and denied being involved in their disappearances. 
But Beckett would quickly crumble to police pressure and he confessed. Beckett admitted to police everything that happened that night. And the following is an account from Beckett. This is extremely difficult to listen to and very graphic. I know I gave a warning at the top of the episode, but please, if you are sensitive to themes of sexual assault, maybe stop listening here. What these girls went through on this night is truly horrific. On the night of Sunday, October 5th, 1997, Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett had already stolen the grey Ford Telstra vehicle, sold the drugs to their associate and got the pink television. Then they just drove. They were drinking beer and injecting amphetamines. By 9pm, they had reached Bega and were driving down Bega Tathra Road. The men spotted two young girls on the side of the road. They pulled up alongside them and they had a short conversation, quickly convincing the girls to get into the car. However, with a pink television in the back, there just wasn't enough room. Beckett threw the television on the side of the road to make room for the girls. It seems Camilleri had learned from his previous alleged crime because before closing the doors, Camilleri put the child locks on, so these rear doors could not be opened from the inside. It also wasn't like the girls could get out through the windows or scream for help either, because this was an older model car and the windy-wheeler, I don't know what it's called, but what you use to wind the window up and down, you know what I mean, but those were missing. Camilleri was driving the car and they just kind of drove around with the girls and talked. Camilleri stopped at Tathra Beach. Here they hung out and drank more beer. The girls were probably excited. Here were two older men wanting their attention. Maybe they were flirting. The girls had no idea how quickly this would all change. Camilleri told the girls he would take them back to the campsite and he started to drive towards that direction. But at some point, something happens to the car that aggravates Camilleri and that's when everything changes. He stomped the car and started screaming at them. The girls obviously had had enough, but when they tried to get out, they couldn't. And they couldn't roll the windows down either. They are panicking at this point. Camilleri then pulls a knife out of his pocket, pointing it at the girls. He threatens that if they tried to escape, he would kill them. He gave the knife to Beckett to keep the knife pointed at the girls so he could keep driving. The next 12 hours are horrific. Camilleri first drove near a rubbish tip on Old Wallagoot Road, where he demanded that the girls take their clothes off. They obviously refused, but it didn't matter. Both Camilleri and Beckett forcibly sexually assaulted them, all while the girls begged them to stop. Both men would then take turns driving further south, stopping at multiple secluded locations along the way, where the girls would be repeatedly sexually assaulted, as well as inside the vehicle as one of the other men drove. The girls would ask if they were going to die. Camilleri assured them that as long as they did what they were told, they were going to take them somewhere and tie them to a tree to give the men time to leave the area, and they would be fine. Camilleri would whisper to Beckett that this was never going to happen, telling his accomplice, they can't go back. They can't go back. 8am the following morning, Monday, October 6th, 1997. Camilleri drove to Fiddler's Green Creek in Eden, Victoria. The men bound the girls, forcing them to walk deep into the woods near the creek. Here they forced the girls to again remove their clothes and wash themselves in the creek to remove any DNA evidence from the sexual assaults. And as Camilleri promised the girls earlier, Nicole and Lauren were tied up to a tree. Camilleri then ordered Beckett to kill both girls. 
He flat out refused. He wasn't doing that on his own. That was unfair. Camilleri threatened Beckett with a knife, saying he would kill him too if he didn't comply. So while Camilleri waited in the car, Beckett went to carry out the plan. Beckett initially tried to drown Lauren Barry in the river. But when this didn't work, she kept fighting back. Lauren was thrashing around and at one point kicked Beckett in the leg, knocking him over. This frustrated Beckett. He took his knife out, jamming it in the side of Lauren's neck. In the process of doing this, Beckett would cut his own thumb, leaving behind important DNA evidence. Beckett would leave Lauren face first in the river to slowly and painfully die alone. Nicole's murder was far more brutal. She had been tied to a tree out of view of what was happening to her best friend, but she had heard Lauren's screams. She knew she was going to die, but she was going to put up one hell of a fight. Beckett took out his knife and slashed Nicole across the throat three times. But that wasn't going to kill Nicole, and she screamed for help. Beckett would tell police in his confession that Nicole wasn't dying, even after he brutally stabbed her several times in the chest. This would have been absolute torture, the amount of pain this poor kid would have been going through. But Nicole kept fighting back, fighting for her life. Beckett admitted to repeatedly kicking and stomping Nicole's head until she finally stopped moving. Beckett returned to Camilleri to tell him what he had done. Camilleri demanding to know if Beckett saw a demon when he murdered the girls. The pair drove to a place called Theodore Lookouts, where they burned their blood-stained clothes and the ropes used to tie the girls. The next stop was Lake Burley Griffin, where they discarded the murder weapon, before returning to their hometown of Yass, New South Wales, just outside of Canberra. Here they would spend the next six hours deep cleaning the stolen car. They removed the seats and the carpet, basically stripping the car's interior. Beckett then drove back to Bega and tried to find where he left the pink television, but he couldn't find it. Meanwhile, Camilleri abandoned the stolen grey Ford Telstra in suburban Canberra. This confession was given November 12, 1997, the exact same day. Beckett led police to where they could find Nicole and Lauren. Inspector Shane Box, who was one of the officers there when the girls were recovered, spoke of the horror they found that day. Quote, There was nothing. Young Lauren was in the water. Nicole, there was just... Animals had been around and they'd been left out in the warm weather for five weeks. Unquote. Leslie Camilleri and Lindsay Beckett would immediately be charged with the abduction, assault and murders of 16-year-old Nicole Collins and 14-year-old Lauren Barry. In an attempt to gain evidence to use in the criminal trials, police would go to each location Beckett said they sexually assaulted the girls. This would have been a grim task, but necessary to ensure these monsters would be locked away for a long time. He claimed he had no knowledge what happened that night, that he had been in a drug-induced stupor for the entirety of the time the girls were in the car. The physical evidence found would include the shirt Lauren was wearing that night, the same shirt they had already given back to her parents. As I said earlier, this shirt was thankfully never washed, and when it was forensically examined, it was found to have Camilleri's semen on it. At Ben Boyd National Park, police found Lauren's black rubber flashlight and Nicole's tampon. July 26, 1998. Lindsay Beckett pled guilty at the Supreme Court of Victoria. Beckett was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 35 years. 
In sentencing, Justice Vincent spoke of the strong influence Camilleri had over Beckett, describing him as someone, quote, who had fallen under the influence of an older individual of much stronger personality, unquote. Beckett will be eligible for parole in 2033, when he will be 59 years old. Due to Leslie Camilleri's insistence he was not involved in the girls' murders, he pled not guilty. And it was his turn to front the Supreme Court of Victoria on February 15, 1999. The prosecution called upon 70 witnesses, including Leslie Beckett. The prosecution also had the forensic evidence against Camilleri. They found something that tied him to every location Beckett said the girls were sexually assaulted. And then they had his semen found on Lauren's shirt. There was no denying his involvement. So on April 27, 1999, Camilleri was found guilty and sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Camilleri will spend the rest of his natural life behind bars. But this wouldn't be the last time Camilleri would be in front of a judge for a murder of a young teen. 2012. Camilleri appeared in the Melbourne Magistrates Court via video link from HM Prison Bar 1 where he was serving his sentence. He pled guilty to the 1992 murder of 13-year-old Prudence Bird. Well, a 20-year murder mystery is drawing closer to a close in Victoria after bigger schoolgirl killer Leslie Camilleri admitted he's also responsible for the death of a 13-year-old girl. The Supreme Court heard the triple killer disputes aspects of the police case, leaving some questions still unanswered about the murder of Prue Bird. 13-year-old Prudence Bird vanished from the Melbourne suburb of Glenroy on February 2, 1992. A then 22-year-old Leslie Camilleri snatched Prudence from her home with several other men. Her uneaten lunch would be later found on a table in front of the television, the front door wide open. Prudence would be last seen distressed and calling for help, in the back of a light blue hatchback vehicle being driven away. These men held Prudence captive in a shed and sexually assaulted her before killing her. However, Camilleri would claim in his guilty plea that he acted alone and the murder was an accident after he abducted the girl. That he had hog-tied her with cable ties and threw her in the back of the car, accidentally killing her. But the forensic evidence and the witness reports do not support this. Camilleri was not alone in committing this brutal murder. The judge ruled Camilleri will always remain a danger to young girls and sentenced him to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole his third life sentence. There is a special place in hell for monsters like Leslie Camilleri. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.